Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're concluding our coverage of Wolfe's novella, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which was published in 1972. I can't believe we're here in the last bit of this amazing story, Brandon. I'm super excited to get into this today. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. For our listeners, last time we left off with a bit of a cliffhanger, we learned a lot about our narrator's history with the experimentation of his fathers. We talked about the dreams he's been having, and then we left our listeners hanging with the discovery of what's going to happen with the teenagers, Phaedria, David, and our narrator with this slave in this pit under Port Mimizan. Right. It's this four-armed, praying mantis-faced slave. And we pick up really just right in the middle of the action here. David and the narrator attack the slave. Of course, it doesn't go well at all. The narrator accidentally stabs David's thigh and he cuts into his femoral artery. In the, the struggle, the narrator does kill the slave and he does this by stabbing him in the throat with the broken glass from the, the mirror. And the narrator also tells us that in the fighting, he got very close to the slave's face and seeing his own face reflected in the slave's eyes, he noticed how very similar their two faces are. It's surely meaningful that it was the mirror that the narrator used to kill him, while the instrument of his experiments on frogs and mice and monkeys is what has wounded his brother. That's right. Last time we commented on and highlighted the presence of the mirror in this scene, and, and probably that something significant was going to happen with the mirror and the broken mirror, the shattered image. And that is now symbolic of the killing of this slave, which we will soon find out is, in fact, a product of his father's experiment. This brief section here, these three paragraphs are gruesome in detail and uncomfortable. I squirmed as I was reading them. And we still have the grinning face of this slave throughout this ordeal. And it is just chilling and graphic and grotesque and fantastic writing. Wolf's juggling an awful lot in the descriptions of the fighting with balancing the physicality of the fight with the narrator's own reflections about how the fight progressed, but also the significance of these things. And here, the narrator even reflects that this observation that he and this four-armed slave have the same face reminds him of Dr. Marsh's comments about cloning and also about his father's previous business as a seller of slave children. And so now he makes the connection that you know we, the readers, have already made long ago. He understands finally that he is a clone, and that the picture of his mother was taken long, long ago on Earth. In this section of the story, the final closing action and exposition, we're going to be hitting points over and over again that we have suspected from the early pages of this story. So I don't want to keep on pointing out everything we got right, but this is one thing we got we got right, that the mother is probably from Earth, as the narrator suggests, or at least some ancestor even of Mr. Million. 
Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll high five ourselves off mic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, ultimately, they stabilize David's bleeding and they get him home, but they don't have the money and they don't have the knowledge that the narrator had hoped to acquire from the body of this slave. And it's important to remember, especially as we're rounding third here, that the narrator is the one who escalated this from a simple robbery to a homicide, to a murder, that his fascination, his need to know about the processes of the biological creature that was made is his overwhelming desire at the cost of everything. And he doesn't see anything wrong with that. At the end of the episode, we're going to ask, who is the narrator? Not his name, but what kind of person is he? And these are the things we should keep in mind. Because things are about to escalate even more. When they get home, or really we should say when they get out of this warehouse, the narrator realizes that it's high summer, it's July or August, even though his last memory is of early autumn. So his period of unconscious action, which is what he calls it, had devoured an entire winter and an entire spring. He says here that he felt that he had lost himself when he made this discovery. And I I can't imagine what that would feel like to just suddenly realize that there are nine months of your life that you just don't remember. This is kind of the point of the experiment in some way, is the dissolution of the self. And now he is fully realizing what the experiments were about and that they were a success for his father. And we'll get a line here in a few pages that refers to the dream where the narrator, in reference to another long passage of time, says, time passed on the wings of birds. And we talked about the dreams, the imagery of him being on the wing of a dove in one of his dreams. And then, Glenn, you brought up the sails and how he's up in the sails and how this was uh, slang for the wings of a dove or the wings of a bird. So we're getting these instances of the dreams coming into play in this last section. I'm going to point a few more of them out as we go along. Well, back in the Maison du Chien, The narrator now meets an ape who springs to his shoulder, and of course, he assumes that it is one of his father's, but Mr. Million informs him that it is in fact his own, that David was not wrong when he believed that the narrator had thrown away his mice and moved on to primates. There's a line here I think that is worth reading. Wolf writes, I did not know the little beast, but scars under his fur and the twist of his limbs showed he knew me. This is chilling. Absolutely. And the narrator here adopts the symbol of his father in this section. We see this repetition of symbolism with the ape, though he calls his father's pet a monkey, but the scars are similar. All this stuff is just repeating. And the narrator takes ownership of it consciously as an individual, but we as readers can see that he is in some way unable to escape his fate. Wolf gives us an entire paragraph in parentheses, and it's just marvelous. We learn an awful lot about this ape. We learn that the ape's name is Popo, and that the narrator still has him as a pet, that Mr. Million cared for Popo while the narrator was imprisoned. And now that he is home again, the sight of Popo running across the parapets makes the narrator think that he is young again and that his father may still summon him for drugged conversations and experiments at any moment. What an amazing symbol that is of both fear and love, right? Uh, Of being paternal and also being victimized by your own father, all wrapped up here in his adoption of this pet. 
well, there is a medical emergency going on that we should return to. So their father treats David himself. Uh, He patches him up in the basement laboratory. Their father seems now to treat the narrator differently. He's guarded against him. The narrator speculates that this is because his father believed that he had hurt David intentionally, that this wasn't really an accident. But he also knows that it may very well be the result of something that had happened during his period of lost time. During the period of David's recovery, Mr. Million, Aunt Janine, Fidria, and her friend Mary Doll congregate in David's room. Mary Doll is the opposite of Fidria. She's fair to Fidria's dark, and she's kind-hearted to Fidria's manipulativeness. And I really love this name for this woman, Mary Doll, M-A-R-Y-D-O-L. But this is a name that really puzzles me. I don't know, Brandon, if you have any idea where this name comes from or what Wolf is doing with this name. But this is not a name that people have. This is a name that is made up. It just must be derived from some other place. It feels like a portmanteau in some way. I wasn't able to really find much on this name. Do you do you know what Wolf is doing here? Do you have an idea? Well, so I don't know what he's doing here, but I have an absurd idea. The name seemed so familiar to me. I just kept hearing in my mind over and over again, Mary Doll, Mary Doll. And I thought, why Why do I know this name? What 19th century novel is this from? And it finally occurred to me that this is in my head because this is from the song that Tom Bombadil sings about himself in The Fellowship of the Ring. Hi-ho, Mary Doll, Mary Doll, my darling. In that poem, and we should say that the Mary Doll there is not the name Mary with D-O-L on the end. It's Mary, like Merriment or Merry Christmas or Merry and Pippin, if you will. The phrase there, Mary Doll, is standing in for his wife uh, when we, we get more stanzas later in that song. This is when he actually starts using Goldberry instead of Mary Doll. Goldberry is the only nymph that appears in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. Phaedria's a nymph. Nerissa's a nymph. I think that this is Wolf incorporating Tolkien's only nymph into this catalog of, of nymphs. Now, there might be some totally better explanation that someone in the Wolf Pack has, but this is what I've got right now. That's a brilliant insight because it's such an odd name, but it does sound so familiar, but I couldn't put together where it came from. So thanks for bringing that in here. (laughs) Well, I'm still not sure there's not something obvious that I'm just missing. And maybe we'll put that question to Mark Aramini when we uh, get to talk to him about this in uh, just a a couple of episodes. Let's talk a little bit more about Mary Doll and what's going on with her in the story here. The narrator grows fond of her and he, he takes to walking her home. On his solitary return journey after he deposits her at her house, He often stops at the slave market and buys fried bread and a black coffee, and he watches the bidding, very much as Mr. Million used to like to do when they would go to the library. Now, the narrator here would find himself staring at the faces of the slaves, and this went on for at least a month before he realized what he was looking for. A young male slave, uh, described as a sweeper, is brought to the market, and the narrator recognizes his face as his own and as his father's. The narrator goes and speaks to the slave and even thinks that he's going to purchase him. He's going to buy him and he's going to free him. But the slave answers him in the servile manner of slaves. And so instead, the narrator turns away in disgust and goes home. One thing we have to remember is that the slaves have had their brain chemistry altered in some way. Now, it may not be all slaves, but either there is disgust in the recognition that the narrator has that he himself has been a servant trapped in certain conditions that he is unable to overcome, and there's some psychological barrier to his own personal freedom, 
or he's recognizing what has been done to this slave to make them have a servile attitude, whether it is the result of the culture of Port Mimizan or his father's own experimentation. One of those options, the first one, makes this kind of a psychologically complex encounter where it's another mirror episode where he sees himself and in this instance recognizes himself and is disgusted by what he sees reflected back at him. And so he can't overcome that to free the slave. The way this reads to me, though, is more in the second sense, that he knows exactly what has happened to the slave and has no compassion. And we're seeing this encroaching darkness come into the narrator's mind that will culminate in some awful act. We also see in this section the fruition of something we saw narrated earlier on with Mr. Million, where the narrator, I think in this instance, if a certain reading of this story is true, is experiencing what Mr. Million experiences. But Mr. Million is trapped also in a very different way. And it's not the case, I think, that Mr. Million experiences disgust when he sees one of his children, I'll call them, out on the slave market. Instead, he is constantly filled with some sort of compassion. He is an emotional creature, more so than anyone else in this family line. I have a real question about how this disgust, this revulsion is going to line up with the impending villainous monologue that we're going to get from the father here in in really just a matter of pages. So we'll head towards that point now. That night when his father summons him to the lab, the narrator observes how nearly identical they are now that he is older. And he thinks, too, of the four-armed slave that he had killed. Wolf does a masterful bit of storytelling here when he jumps to the narrator's plan to kill his father. Now, this plan grows out of a casual conversation that occurs in David's room about what they would get when their father is dead. Aunt Janine mentions the money that he is rumored to have hidden in the house. Phedria has heard that he possesses a luxury yacht. David thinks of the political power that money can buy, and also about hunting and the life of an aristocrat. But the narrator wants only to be free. He thinks of the hours and the weeks and the months that have been taken from him, and he regards this as the destruction of his very self, the destruction of his identity and of his personhood, and he fears that he will lose more time, that he might lose years or decades at a time as these experiments progress. As soon as he has these thoughts, he knows that he must kill his father because his father will discover that he's had these thoughts during their drugged conversations and he also knows that once his father discovers this he will kill him without a care yeah i love this section i love the fear of the narrator i love how any reader with a sense of compassion would skim over the fact that he's disgusted by the slave and immediately return to feeling connected and understanding the narrator's motivation here that who wouldn't do the same? I love how everything is kind of complexly woven together to give us a very difficult portrait of this narrator at this point. I do want to point out here David's plans, his desire to be free. Uh, You brought it up, but I'm just going to read this sentence because I do want to know what happens to David, and I'm going to ask that question. Here it says, David talked about hunting in the grand style and the political power money could buy. This is, I think, a very important sense in the story, and our discussion will reveal why. The next thing I want to bring up in this section is the 
narrator's sense of the destruction of himself, which gnaws at him night after night. And this, to me, really calls to mind the big dream sequence we get, where the stalling of the vessel, the father stalls the vessel to figure out why it is stalled. We're going to see this tautological logic in this villainous monologue, as you call it, and it's going to come up again and again throughout the end of the story, that they are trying to figure out why something is the case. And in order to do it, they're stopping anything from happening. We might be at a point where the reason why the ship is stalled is because they stalled it. And so this destruction of the self is, to me, evocative of that stopped momentum and the fear of the narrator of losing himself, even though he knows another clone could easily be made. It's a sentient life who fears loss of life that no one else regards really as sentient. And this might harken back to the disgust at this sweeper in the slave market as well. The scheme that the narrator hatches, I think, is really straight out of a Wilkie Collins novel or maybe even a a Dickens novel. The scheme is that he will kill his father and then replace him, uh, making up some story about he, the narrator, that is, had left home to go, you know, do something with his life. That night, he has his scalpel with him when he is summoned to the lab, and he is prepared to use it on his father. But his father seems to know of the plan, and rather than have him lie down on the table, he instructs the narrator to sit in a chair because they're going to have a guest. His father begins to explain that he understands that the narrator is angry, but this is interrupted by a knock on the door. It's Dr. Marsh and one of the house prostitutes. They exchange some pleasantries, and the narrator observes that Dr. Marsh is now wearing the clothing that is fashionable on St. Croix and has taken to enjoying the brothel. He's gone native in some sense, though physical features still seem very jarring to the narrator. When these pleasantries are concluded, the prostitute leaves, and the three of them now will have a very serious discussion. And there's a a fantastic simile as the prostitute leaves the room that I just want to read. Uh, Wolf writes, The heavy library door swung shut behind her with a soft click, like the sound of a switch or old glass breaking. This is recalling the mirror shattering, right? This is definitely an omen. This is what's about to happen is even more shattering of his self. You're absolutely right about that. And what I love about the way this is written on the page is that it is separated by two section breaks. What Wolf is doing here is calling attention to his section breaks in this story by writing one sentence before one, one after one, which is the simile, and then moving on with the story. He is purposefully here calling attention to the fact that there are these breaks in the story, which forces us to ask the question, what is going on with these section breaks? What are they meant to represent? To me, I think it's fairly clear at this point that they represent the passage of time, somebody who is writing this as a journal and returning to it. And so at this point in the story, when we go back and reread it, we can think about the intervening time between when these sections are written and what was thought about. And it just adds this extra dimensionality to the style of tale being told. It's a great trick. Well, that's amazing because I just assumed that was a typographical mistake. I just assumed that was an error, a printing error, that this one sentence is not meant to be contained in its own section. I really like your reading of the intentionality of it. I will say that one of the things that Mark Aramini wants to talk to us about in two episodes is the 
history of this text and some of the typographical mistakes. I don't know if this is one of them, but we're going to have a chance to, to ask him and find out. I can't wait to find out. I'm going to stick to my ring no matter what. Um, <laughs> uh, another thing I want to point out here is this is another instance where we see flowers in the story. The last time I think we saw them being brought up, though they're kind of all over the place, but to me, this calls to mind the dream of the narrator and Phaedria. The reason why is that there are flowers decorating the room when they're having a guest. And we know from the narrator's past description of the house that much of the house does not get cleaned or looked after, only the parts that the patrons see. And so we see here that flowers are meant to be something very special. They're meant to represent freshness and cleanness, or at least a superficial good that covers up maybe much of the rot that is the case in this narrator's world. And so that really just clarified some of that symbol to me in that dream that we talked about, that we didn't really know quite what to do with those that flowered meadow. But I think there's real dirt on the ground with Fetria, as we're going to find out here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, And the last thing I want to say is that uh, the father, when he says he can see that the narrator is angry with him, is interrupted as he's saying, don't you know who? And then the knock on the door. And that end of that sentence is great. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know who you're speaking to? All these things that indicate that the father is fully aware. He's specially able to know what the narrator is feeling. And as we're going to find out, he has done this sort of thinking himself. This is characteristic wolf to give us a sentence that we desperately want to have the conclusion to and we'll just never get it i think you're probably right that that was the sort of thing he was going to say but i don't know maybe he was going to say don't you know who broke joe dimaggio's uh hit streak record that's probably what he was going to say i just i just thought we'd go with something closer to the story here (laughs) yeah that was probably smart (laughs) all right well their father is interested in dr marsh's anthropological expertise and he asks him about the definition of the word race. And in particular, he wants to know if Dr. Marsh would consider a group of similar men thinking similar thoughts a race. We don't really get an answer to this question as the, the conversation shifts to whether Dr. Marsh will return to Earth. Dr. Marsh explains that it takes 20 years of Newtonian time, what we might call objective time, to return to Earth. So by the time he does return, even though it will only have been a little while for him in relative time, His education and his credentials will be 40 years out of date. But because he's from Earth, he's something of a superstar among the academics on Saint-Croix, and he's been offered a position at the university here uh, with a high salary and frequent periods of sabbatical. And uh, I can't help but be reminded here of Trip Trap. Dr. Marsh seems to be much less naive about academia than uh, Dr. Morton Melville Finch was. Yeah, exactly. I love this exchange in the story. Marsh's only response to what you call a group of men thinking similar thoughts a race. Marsh's only response is, and women. And it's just a total evasion of the question. And I think we're going to get in the next novellas maybe why Marsh is so evasive of this sort of topic. We also see in the section the narrator's hostility, just outward hostility to Dr. Marsh. And part of it, at least, is the express motivation that having a visitor, no matter who it is, even though we know he's intrigued by Dr. Marsh, interrupts his plans to murder his father, which is something I'm sure he needs to get over with quickly in order to be able to go through with it at all. 
Not that I have any experience with this, but I imagine that you start to second guess yourself. I mean, we all do this when we have something important that we need to do. I mean, you know, perhaps a more benign, a better example of this is, you know, when you're uh, you think the time maybe is right to kiss someone you've been dating for a little while. You've got to do that right at the moment that you make your mind up to do it or you're you're not going to do it. Right. You you hesitate that extra two seconds. You're going to wait till the next date. Yeah, exactly. And that's a similar sort of thing that's going on here. Yeah, someone might want to read into my my similes here. (laughs) All right. Well, the conversation shifts now to the fact that the narrator and his father are both clones, that they are genetically identical to each other. Dr. Marsh thinks it's appropriate then to regard them as a single individual, which strikes me as very weird, uh, but we'll get some more about this in just a bit. And the narrator explains to his father and to Dr. Marsh that he already knows he's a clone. This news is not at all shocking to him. His father says that it was very well shocking to him when he found out. And uh, he even explains that he came into this very library to confront and kill his father when he discovered the truth of the matter. Dr. Marsh asks if he did, but the father dismisses this question by saying that he doesn't think that it really matters. But he also indicates that Dr. Marsh is here basically to act as a buffer while he and the narrator have their own version of this same conversation. Yeah, this is the old version of the talk that uh, this family does once a generation, I suppose. We also learn in the section that David is biological child. He is the result of a biological pairing, not of a cloning. And that Aunt Janine is also the same. She is some older version of David. She is half human, half clone. And that's really important. That's a very important point that is going to help us explain part of what's going on at the end of this story, which I think a lot of people have questions about this last sentence. And I just want to say, I think this is part of the answer. And we also get in this section, a new description of the father. Wolf writes this, my father's hunched high shoulders wrapped in the dingy scarlet of his old dressing gown made him look like some savage bird. And I remembered having read in a book of natural history of one called the red-shouldered hawk. This is another image of the predatory bird and the young wolf that we brought up in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And I think the way we described it in that first episode, the grammar of that sentence seemed to make it apparent that it was the the owl eating the she-wolf's young. But there's also another reading that it is the wolf eating the she-wolf's young, something cannibalistic going on. And Wolf is tying these images together very tightly as he's closing the final action of his story. And we're getting this predatory metaphor here in the first moment that we're encountering the father since the long dream in which his aunt tells him that his father's the person they have to be afraid of. So I think this has all really been working out in his subconscious for some time now. Well, at this point, we get some exposition about what the narrator's father has been up to, though it is still characteristically wolfish. We're going to have more questions than answers. He's made perhaps 50 clones, mostly for practice. It's very difficult to clone a person, and he needed to perfect his skills. We get a mention of Gregor Mendel's experiments with genetics here, and of course, this calls us back to the robot version of Gregor Mendel in House of Ancestors, which also had this very Freudian psychological narrative going on, which I think we're about to really see at play here in The Fifth Head of Cerberus as well. 
Uh, the father sold the failed clones that he had made, and the narrator chimes in here to comment that he understands now why Mr. Million used to stop in the slave market on their way to the library, and he also notes to us that he was, in this moment, viscerally aware of the scalpel in his pocket. So I think this really supports your reading of how he felt seeing that the sweeper. This really, I think, relates back to that disgust and reinforces your reading there. It's so extraordinarily tragic that this destruction of the self that has been forced upon the narrator is something now he carries around with him, maybe in the symbol of the scalpel in some way, as an act of violence against the world he's willing to do. He has no compassion left. He has no sense of understanding of what these people have gone through, of how they were made, of how their conditions were forced upon them in horrible ways by their father. He only has anger and need to destroy. Yeah, his father is icy, though. At this mention of Mr. Million's feelings, the, the father comments that Mr. Million is more sentimental than he is, and he also comments that he himself dislikes leaving the house. And he uses these comments to explain to Dr. Marsh that even though they're cloned, they do have individual differences. Now we're going to come to this villainous monologue about why, about what the cloning and the experiments are for. The father says that he seeks self-knowledge, and so has a long line of clones, a process originating with the personality who now is Mr. Million. One of the questions that he wants answered is why they even seek this self-knowledge to begin with. And he also says that they wish to discover why they fail, why others rise and change while they remain here. And by here, he means socially and intellectually. He means at this level. Now, I'll just read from his monologue a little bit. After how many generations? We do not achieve fame or the rule of even this miserable little colony planet. Something must be changed. But what? Wolf goes on to have the father explain that he wants to make the narrator understand that the experiments he's performed on him have been necessary if they are to become more than they have been. But he cuts himself off just as he says, we have to find out. And again, we don't get an explanation of what he needs to find out. This is another sentence I would have liked to have had the ending to. There's so much packed into this section that it's hard to really break down, I think. But I want to point a few things out. First is this tautology that we get multiple times in the father's monologue. He says this, he says, we ask the question to ask the question. This is, why are you continuing this chain of experimentation? You were an experiment, your father was an experiment. We don't know how old Mr. Million is, but however long this has been going on, that they are stuck asking the question to ask the question. Nobody has moved beyond the question. And this is the tautology of stopping the ship to see why the ship is stopped. It's the paradox that they are trapped in. This is the repetition of the awful picture of repetition found in Dante's Inferno, that these characters cannot change their actions and are doomed to repeat the same thing over and over again in every circle. And I think that this is the clearest representation that this is a logical circle that these people are trapped in. And we've done a lot of discussing to show that, that, that they are trapped in the underworld in some way. But not only do they ask the question to ask the question, one of the questions whose answers they seek 
is the question of why they seek. So at every level, they are trapped in this routine, in this repetition. This also is at odds with the father's desire to seek self-knowledge. And this phrase self-knowledge is important because it's going to come back at the very end of this story, though with different language. And finally, we have this phrase, this sentence, we wish to discover why we fail, why others rise and change. This is others not of this line of clones, and we remain here. This sentence here really changed my reading of the whole story of something I want to pick up in the discussion is whether the presence of the abos in this story and Vale's hypothesis and, and Janine being Aubrey Vale is really meant as a, a kind of metaphor, as a larger thematic element to drive home this sense of stuckness, that the family aren't abos, that they are clones, that maybe it doesn't matter whether or not there were abos ever, but that this is the sort of thing that is on Janine's mind as she's trying to solve the problems of the family. We're going to pick that up. I know it's a crazy question, but um, to me, it totally switched how I was reading the presence of the Abos and Vale's hypothesis in this story. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't wait to get to that part of the discussion. I want to jump on your use of the word tautology here. That's exactly the right word for the logical thinking, this kind of this fallacy really that's going on here. And of course, Dr. Marsh would immediately see the, the flaw of this argument But it also feels like a cycle of abuse. It's, my father used to beat me. I wish he hadn't. I'm now going to beat my son. That's what is happening here as well, as much as an intellectual, logical fallacy. It's just stuck. He's he's trapped by his own experiences and is trying to rationalize his way out of them and can't. And it's the fault of this experimentation, of this line, of this examination of why they can't get further. It's not because they refuse to change in any way. They don't take action because they're stuck on the question. And they don't realize that the way to leave the question, the world of the abstract, is to take action in the world, a new action. And Again, the ship is stalled. They are marooned without the angel to really rescue them, which is what happens in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Let's pick back up with this conversation. So Dr. Marsh has some comments of his own that he wants to make. For one, he says that this family is not unique in trying this sort of thing. Before cloning was outlawed, people on Earth had also tried this exact thing. And Uh, There's a world-building note here, too, in which we learn that human cloning became possible at the end of the 20th century. It's always fun to point those things out. But what really matters here is that Dr. Marsh wants to explain why he regards these two people as a single individual. He uses the engineering practice of relaxation as an analogy. This, he explains, is when engineers can't directly solve a specific problem but are able to make reasonable assumptions to produce an effect that is similar to solving the problem. And this can be done as well with humans who are genetically identical, given that there are only two factors in shaping a human's personality, nature and nurture. Given an identical nature, the nurture doesn't need to be exactly identical in order to achieve an identical personality. It merely needs to be approximated and mostly just even for the first three years of existence. And that's what's gone on in the Maison Duchenne for generations. Yeah, it absolutely follows that 
the environment does play an effect on these relaxation tests. And I won't pretend to be an engineer, so I won't really go into what it means because I can't. But suffice it to say that the point is, and the important point that Dr. Marsh is making, is that it is producing an identical result. And so he can refer to them as the same person because they have lived identical lives and nothing about them is different enough that can't be accounted for by age and experience. And so Dr. Marsh is basically saying like the environmental factors you grew up with are the same. You're going to repeat the same exact life your father has had. And you'll see when you're older that it's the same. You're right. You are identical. Also very important, this reference to three years, which we see in the first experiment with the boy and the soldier. And the three years is going to return at the end of the story as well. So um, this is an important period of time that is repeated throughout the story in very meaningful ways. And we're going to save our big discussion of identity, personhood, the self for our, our wrap up episode, which will come next. But I'll say right now before we move on that I don't believe Dr. Marsh's argument at all. I do not believe that these are the same individual. And I look forward to digging into that next episode. All right. Well, Dr. Marsh continues to talk about this, but the narrator stops listening. He came here to kill his father, and now he wants to get on with it. He interrupts Dr. Marsh, and he accuses him of being from St. Anne. Dr. Marsh says that, yeah, I spent several years on St. Anne before coming to St. Croix, but the narrator isn't done. He says that Dr. Marsh isn't from Earth at all, that he is a fraud from St. Anne, and moreover, he is in fact an abo, and not a human. Uh, This is a a pretty good technique if you want to really annoy someone or get someone to... This is really a blow out of nowhere, I think. It certainly feels that way. And I, you know, oddly enough, I think it becomes the springboard that creates the next two stories in this novella. Yeah, I mean, Uh, it's it's really smart. Yeah. But at the same time, it is just an attack on this person's credibility and character. And it is such a turn from his first encounter with Dr. Marsh, who he was fascinated and couldn't get enough information from and just wanted to be around and learn from. And this attack really feels out of nowhere. And it feels almost like a non sequitur. It feels like it is meant to hurt, even though we don't know if people insult one another this way on St. Croix. It certainly feels like it is a very cruel thing to say to a person. Yeah. And Dr. Marsh acts as if this is you know ridiculous and eventually he leaves. He says, I don't have to sit here and, and listen to this. And of course, that exit is what the narrator wanted to begin with. Now, Wolf does not narrate the murder for us. And we jump now to an account of the narrator's time imprisoned in a labor camp in the Tattered Mountains, which is an amazing name for a mountain range. The labor here is hard and the environment is cruel. They lose half their population in wintertime. The camp is guarded by robots, and uh, Wolf's description of these robots is, is breathtaking, so I'm, I'm just going to read it. These guards administered the exact mixture of severity and fairness some prison board had decided upon when they were programmed, and the problem of brutality and favoritism by hirelings had been settled forever, so that only well-dressed men at meetings could be cruel or kind. But it turns out that that might not really be true. The narrator sometimes talks to his guards about Mr. Million, about how he was essentially raised by a robot of sorts. From time to time, he finds extra rations hidden in his bedding that the guards 
perhaps have left for him because he has fondness and affection for a robot. I love this detail. I love everything about the prison guards here. I love what the narrator writes about, what Wolf is bringing up here as though there's some kind of algorithm for justice that we can achieve perfectly. And I love that the recognition of the intelligence, whether it's artificial or not, is an act of kindness to these beings that repay that act in in kind. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it's, again, this sense that we're seeing in this last section of the book of rather than there being these external binaries, we're getting to the point where people are two things at once, these internal binaries. Like we talked about with how Dr. Aubrey Vale and Aunt Janine were two identities within the same person, two personas. Now we're getting even deeper into these internal binaries. We have the half humans, half clones, the half abo that Dr. Marsh is being accused of, Mr. Million as half human or half robot, but whatever he is enough to generate sympathy in these other creatures who recognize something meaningful about being seen as an equal to humans. We start so big with the two planets, and now we're getting down to this kind of real internal sense of self, these two senses, which I think the narrator himself is struggling with as well. Yeah, and we get some gripping descriptions of his psychological struggle here while he's in prison. We also get some explanation of what happens in Port Mimizan after the murder. We learn that the laws on St. Croix prohibit a criminal from profiting by his or her crime, and so the narrator cannot directly inherit the estate. But the court could not find any proof that David was actually the son of their father, and I think that's a puzzle that we're going to want to talk about. But it matters here because it means that the estate goes to Aunt Janine. Later, the narrator gets a letter from an attorney that explains that Aunt Janine has died and that the narrator is now her heir. This is followed by a letter from Mr. Million, who is now officially the robot servitor in charge of the house. And Mr. Million's letter explains that the brothel is no more. Most of the prostitutes left after the murder, and he couldn't make those that had remained obey him after Aunt Janine's death. And I think that's an interesting note as well. It is, and it's a real contrast to Mr. Million and the prison guards, at least in terms of their senses of purpose as artificial intelligences. Yeah, and I'm also real interested in what we learn about David here. David has moved to the capital. And that's really all that we're told about him. I have real questions about what happens with David, where David goes, what is his story in the future. And we also learn here that Phaedria married well. She didn't have to get sold, but Mary Doll was sold. She was sold by her parents. Again, this is the opposites or the, the binaries. This letter is dated three years from the narrator's trial, but he doesn't actually know how long ago that really was, time being very difficult to calculate in this place. So the thing that he feared most, the thing that really propelled him to murder, not wanting to lose his sense of time and not wanting to lose his sense of self because he's lost control of time, now happens to him as a result of committing the murder. But it's almost, again, the opposite. He is not losing time. He is excruciatingly aware of time in all of its kind of deep subjectivity. We have this great description of people with fevers who have a fever for 10 days and swear it's been two years, and then you catch a fever. And so what you're getting is not just lost time, but an awful awareness of time. 
and though it's lost in some way and he is haunted by his past every night and he hallucinates he has maybe lingering effects of the drugs he is not losing time in the in the same way he feared losing time though something i think much worse is taking place or equally as bad he's got no good option Right. This, this, in fact, is in some ways the same choice that Dr. Marsh is faced with this subject yourself to Newtonian time or subject yourself to relative time. That really might be what's at play here as well. Well, at this point, we get some narration of events in this prison camp of what life is like there. A seabird lands in the camp after a storm. It's too exhausted to fly. They kill the bird and they eat it, and the narrator says that he believes the bird was a gannet, but I think we can say definitively that it was not, that it was an albatross. And now we are in the exact plot of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. (laughs) Right, exactly. One of the guards goes berserk, the robot guards. He burns 15 prisoners to death and then duels the other guards with swords of white and blue fire before being destroyed. And, you know, Wolf doesn't connect this berserkness with the consumption of the albatross, but clearly we as readers are are meant to. Again, this is a case of like proximity of events, especially in this sort of narrative contributing to the meaning of the story. Yeah, and Wolf doesn't connect what happens after this you know, with the albatross either. But at this point, perhaps because of this, the narrator and uh, some other prisoners are transferred to a different camp that is surrounded by chasms of red stone. Uh, These are very cool. They are so deep that when he kicks a pebble in, he can hear the rattle of its descent grow to a roar. Then it silences and he never hears it strike bottom. And this is some gorgeous imagery of hell, if ever there was some. Yeah, things are really coming together here at the end of the story. Yeah, it's as if Wolf's a good writer or something. As if, yes. (laughs) Well, finally, the narrator pretends that the people he knows are with him. He imagines that Phaedria talks with him over his dinners. He imagines that he sees David playing squash in the camp. He imagines that Mary Dahl holds his hand while he carries his saw into the mountains. And this is all... Very heartbreaking, especially that last one. I'm not ashamed to admit that I I cried while reading that. Uh, These images fade over time, but he never loses the strongest of them. Always, before falling asleep, he tells himself that in the morning, Mr. Million will take them to the city library. But two, he always wakes, fearing that his father's valet has come to take him to the basement. This is an awful existence. He is forced now to deal with these awful things that have happened to him without distraction. He is alone. He is isolated. It's clear he's not interacting with the prisoners much because he is hallucinating his old friends and his brother. I love Mary Doll a lot as a character in this story. We have three sentences about her, and I don't think she ever speaks. But just the love that the narrator has for her is something I adore about this story. And these hallucinations, I suppose, by by some readers, could call into question the whole reality of this prison in the Tattered Mountains as well. I'm not willing to go down that road. But for readers who would like to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what that could mean. And to me, this all felt really visceral, really vivid. And I felt like Wolf was drawing on some of his own experiences of the army 
of being in Korea, right? Being, you know, in a war zone there, not knowing when you get to come home, if you ever are going to get to come home and thinking always right before falling asleep of the place in your life, the time in your life when you felt the safest and the happiest. And of course, waking up in the morning to realize that you're still trapped in the worst thing that humanity has to offer, which is war. There's a real sense of trauma at play in this writing. And and I think, as we've seen in the past, Wolf is familiar with trauma. Well, we are very close to the end of this story now. Uh, At this point, the narrator is released from prison. And as he goes through this process and realizes what is happening, He begins to think of fried bread and coffee at the slave market, and he becomes so giddy that he can barely hold the bowl that contains his dinner. And this all felt very uh, reminiscent of my own army days when I realized that basic training was coming to an end and I was going to get to eat pizza in Chicago again, you know? Oh, I know that feeling. This might be my favorite paragraph of the story, and I just want to read the section you just referenced because it just is so good at evoking hope here. So... He's eating a bowl of soup, and he realizes he's going to be released. And he says this, And I thought then of the fried bread and coffee at the slave market, not as something of the past, but as something in the future. And my hands shook until I could no longer hold my bowl, and I wanted to rush, shouting at the fences. And it's just beautiful. It's so good. Yeah, this is one of the few moments in this story where we see the narrator experiencing joy. And it's here when he's escaping. In fact, I might suggest that the only other times we see him experiencing joy are when he's experiencing some kind of escape as well. Well, when the narrator at last arrives in Port Mimizan, he buys a newspaper and discovers that it has been nine years since he was sent to prison. The Maison Duchesne is much as he remembers it, save for the vegetation, which is now overgrown. Nerissa, the woman who had trained him to be the brothel's porter, sells pralines in the street in front of the house. But when she sees him, she moves into the house as his servant. Now, the narrator supposes that he should tell us why he's been writing this account to begin with. And I'm just going to read these two lines. I have written to disclose myself to myself. And I am writing now because I will, I know, sometime read what I am now writing and wonder. Perhaps by the time I do, I will have solved the mystery of myself, or perhaps I will no longer care to know the solution. And we're going to unpack this, of course, but for now it's worth saying that he might be playing with his pronouns a little bit in this sentence. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. But also, this is exactly his father's monologue. I seek self-knowledge. I am writing to explain myself to myself. I have to explain why I'm explaining. This is the same loop that his father was stuck in. And he, while he uses nicer, prettier language, more sympathetic language to describe himself, it's the same thing. I don't know. We'll see whether or not we agree that if he's actually become his father in the Martian sense at the end of the story. Right. And we, we are at the end now. It's It's been three years since the narrator's release from prison. He has rebuilt the house as a business, first as a market for sex slaves, and now as a functioning brothel again. Fidria has become one of his prostitutes. Her brilliant marriage has turned out to be a failure. And now I'm just going to read the very end of the story. Last night, while I was working in my surgery, I heard Fidria at the library door. I opened it, and she had the child with her. Someday, they'll want us.
And that's how the story ends. Yeah, it's it's a great ending. This last line is so puzzling. We're going to spend a little bit of time on it today. But this is awful. The, all this prose about Phaedria and his love for her and what's going on. This is almost like snarky and mean. He's like, oh, well, she deserves to be a sex slave because she married somebody else. It's awful. And and this I think this line is so indicative of our narrator's character. And we're going to be examining that. But I want to read how he describes Phaedria. Phaedria lives with us and works too. The brilliant marriage was a failure after all. It's a punchline. It's sick. And the, like, the narrator is fine with it. He's getting something he wants from her, and it might just be this child. But we're going to talk about the nature of the child as well. I think I don't have too much more to say except to get in the discussion. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brennan Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We'll be back in just a few days with a discussion of this part of the fifth head of Cerberus. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>